Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks so much for joining us today, wherever you are to listen to or watch this message. We are in the middle of a series called A Rule for Life, Finding Peace in an Anxious World. And as we are recording these sermons live, we are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is creating a lot of anxiety for people and we have never needed peace more. But no matter where you are or when you are engaging this content, we are always in need of peace. And God has provided a path to peace for us through spiritual disciplines. And that's what we're exploring during this series. So I encourage you uh, to go to iconchurch.org slash rule for life for more resources, more content, and more information. Hi, Icon. My name is Josh Searcy, and I am going to be your new spiritual formation director. Um, although I can't see you, it's good to at least be seen by you. And my wife and I and our little two-year-old daughter can't wait until we can get up there to Seattle when some of this is at least subsided and we can join with you guys. And so I'm excited today to talk about uh, how community brings peace into our life, the way in which peace is flourished even in an anxious world as we embrace community. And so to start, you know, human beings have come a long way in cultivating the world around us and practicing some sort of dominion over the earth. Uh, some of it just, some of it unjust, but in all of our advances, there are still some species on the earth that we just cannot get control of. We can't get our hands around. Uh, one of which is the most stubborn of all, and that's the coyote. The coyotes are nuisances, and they are arguably the most resilient species on the face of the earth. That in just the history of the United States, there have been multiple concerted efforts backed by millions of dollars in order to just wipe coyotes off of the face of the earth because of their annoyance and nuisance. And each of them, each time we try, the, co the coyote population actually booms. Coyotes are some of the only animals to both flourish in the wild and flourish in the city. Go anywhere in the United States and you're likely to run into some sort of coyote, uh, whether it's in the wild or in the city where you can find what they call street coyotes, which, you know, sweet band name. But, uh, and there's a reason for this resiliency. Coyotes are very pack-oriented creatures. Coyotes mate for life and keep together in packs their entire life. There are the loner coyotes that you find, but they tend to be the ones that are actually rabid. And coyotes have some really interesting ways of sticking together and making sure that their pack stays intact in order for them to survive. And so you've probably heard the classic coyote howl that uh, you think is probably just an annoyance, but it's actually been shown that when a coyote howls, it's not just being a jerk, it's actually uh, beginning to take a census of the area. That when a coyote howls, it then waits for the other coyotes in the area to howl along with them. They count each one of those, those howls in order to know how many of their, num their numbers are still around. Uh, and what's fascinating is that for the female coyote, when she howls, if she doesn't get the right amount of responses back, then she actually, there's a, there's a hormone in the female coyote that turns on and says, okay, instead of making three to six pups, this time let's go ahead and make 15 to 18, which is fascinating. The resiliency of coyotes is virtually unstoppable because they insist on not going at it alone. And the Christian people are very similar. Throughout history, there have been concerted efforts to clear the world of Christians, and each time some nation tries, it seems like the Christian population booms, and unlike coyotes, not just due to reprodu reproduction, but to conversion. 
Christians are meant to be communal people, to walk and live in packs. And in the same way as coyotes, the loners tend to be the ones who are, maybe rabid is too strong of a word, but at least unwell. Historically, Christians have always been those who survive because of an emphasis on communal life together. And this community of Christians owes itself to many things, not least of all, the very nature of human beings. That in the very beginning, in Genesis 2.18, after God creates everything, he then looks down and sees that the man is alone and says, that's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. And that word there, man, it's, it's a Hebrew word that literally reads in the more generic term, the human. That in the midst of paradise, there is still one thing off. God has just finished overflowing with creativity and goodness onto creation. He took the human being from the dust and intimately breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and then looks to the east and says, you know, that's a good place for a garden. And then he brings up all the pretty trees that bring about the delicious fruit that God gives this man only the good things. But even in that, he still looks down and says, the man is alone and that will not do. The infinite creativity and goodness of God has been expressed in this little garden with this first human being, but in the midst of that, God still says, he's alone and that will not do. That in in the midst of everything going right, God says the one thing not right and that has to be fixed is loneliness. Loneliness is the first thing designated by the mouth of God as not good. And this not goodness continues to reverberate out through to today. That we live in what experts have called an epidemic of loneliness. And this epidemic is literally killing people. It's been shown that loneliness has a massive toll on the human body. That one day of loneliness, not just being alone, but one real like depressing day of loneliness exacts the same toll on the human body as as smoking a whole pack of cigarettes. Not to mention the emotional and mental toll. Or Seattle itself. Seattle itself comes out at number five on the list of the most lonely cities in America. Not good. We were created for relationship. And in all honesty, out of all of these sermons in this series about finding peace in an anxious world, this is the easiest week to convince you of what you need. I don't need to work hard right now to show you why you need other people. That you're living it, you're feeling it. We feel together today this need for loving connection with others. We need that connection to others to feel well and to have peace. As the authors of The Relational Soul, Richard Plass and James Cofield put it, relationships are not just important priorities. They are essential for our physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual well-being. We cannot live fully alive apart from loving connection with others. This existence of loneliness is not what we were created for. We were meant for others, and if we are to have peace, that peace cannot and will not happen in isolation without being in meaningful relationship with others. That as human beings, we we are not ourselves by ourselves. We never could be. If we are to be ourselves, to be at peace and live into being icons of the invisible God made to reflect his glory and his grace, we need community. That peace actually does need a people, and more specifically, peace needs the Christian people. Peace needs the Christian community. That there are certain aspects that make up our life together as Christians that are utterly necessary for peace to be sustained and to grow 
in your life as a Christian. There are a few principles that the New Testament lays out for Christian community which can actually prompt and grow peace in our anxious lives. And so that's what we're going to do today. What we're going to do is, instead of giving the mechanics of Christian community about what it should look like when you get together, I want to look at a few spots in the New Testament that give the principles of our life together and see how that might bring us peace if we really lived our lives together in this way. And so first, look at 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Some principles to look at. First in 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As John says here in his epistle, the love of God is not meant to terminate on us individually, but is meant to be received, to be taken in, and then expressed through love for one another. He goes even as far as saying that if this is not happening, that if love is not being diffused in relationship with others, then you don't get it. You've not seen the love of God. How can he say that? How can he use such strong words as to say that if you're not loving others, you don't know what it is to love God, to be loved by God? Because the love of God is not trite. John can say this because the love of God is not mediocre. The love of God is the free unhesitating, unqualified, and unflinching expression of his goodness towards sinners that deserve none of it, displayed in the giving of his son, his real beloved, in order that we might have us, he might have us with him again. And so John says here that the depths of the love of God towards sinners are the riches that are to fund our life together. And so the Christian community, with this type of loving God is able to live in love like no other society can. It has the best basis and foundation for love because it's a basis that is not built on performance. It never could be. That any love in a community that is not born from the love of God can only find its strength, its zeal, its endurance, and the continued loveliness of that person. Not so with Christian community. Christians are, to, are the ones who have a God who stared into their mess, who stared into their lives of abject failure and said, I still want you. I know that mess. I see how jacked up your life is. I see how far you've run from me, but I still want you. I'm still going to have you for myself and that's not going to change. Because of that, Christians have the best basis for a love that endures. That the first principle of Christian community is love. Christian community has the basis for loving one another and not having that love destroyed by the unloveliness of the other person. Does that unloveliness maybe disturb and maybe interrupt our love for one another? Sure, because we're still human, but it does not cause us to punt or for that love to be destroyed. 
Christian community is to be that people of love who are able to see everything and have nothing drive us away. That's God's desire for our life together. Christian community is poised for being a community of self-giving, reciprocal love because it's how we started. And it's how we've been carried this whole way. That our new life as Christians began with the love of God, with the love of God intruding upon our jacked up lives and saying, yes, I still want you even there. God's love for us was unprovoked and undeserved and remains irrevocable to this day. And that's the type of love that can change things. That's the type of love that can take a group of people who are, who are still broken, who are still recovering addicts of self and say, no, 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 no. Even there, in the midst of that group of people, love can still flourish because of the love they've received. And so the first principle that Paul lays out for our life together, or really John lays out for our life together, is that we would be a loving community because of the love of God. That the love of God, the depths of the love of God, are the riches that fund our life together. Second, Christian community not only has the resources to be a truly loving people, but also it's provided with the resources to be a people with the right concept of time. And that's so necessary for community to, to thrive, to flourish. That we have to have the right concept of time. And within Christian community, there is a certain cadence of life together. And it's a cadence that most of us uh, might not prefer. It's a little bit more slower than we might expect. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. <clears throat> and we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul makes clear here that there is something happening in Christian community, that we're not just getting together because we're friends. What's happening is spiritual formation, that we are together in order that we might be a catalyst for each other's spiritual formation. Whether that formation shows up in admonishment or encouragement or help, we are shaping one another in Christian community. And yet, above that and with that, Paul takes all of these forming actions with one another and couches each of them in the requirement of patience. Admonishment, encouragement, and help for one another is all to be done, all to be done in the attitude of patience. The concept of time for our life together as Christians is one of a slow cadence that is marked by patience. And it might be obvious what patience is, but I think it's, I think it's worth exploring at a deeper level. And so patience, obviously, is the virtue of waiting. But with Christian patience, it's not a waiting that consists of nothing more than twiddling our thumbs together. Rather, Christian patience involves for waiting for things to reach their end, waiting for others as well as ourselves to take the time that they need in order to change. And above all, waiting for God to fulfill his purposes in his own good time. Patience is the virtue which encounters frustration with a calm, steady frame, waiting steadfastly for a purpose to be fulfilled. And unfortunately, patience is not natural to community. It's not natural to human beings. We're often given to its opposites, right? 
And the obvious opposite would be impatience. We're impatient. We're impatient with other people. We're impatient when we are agitated that we cannot live in complete control of our time or our circumstances or our relationships. Impatience is our anger directed against the fact that we are hemmed in by ourselves and by others and by our situation and find that there is some measure of fulfillment that is being denied to us. That's impatience. But impatience is not the only opposite of, of patience. There's a far more sinister opposite and one that we don't often notice. The other form of the opposite of patience is a slothful resignation, what the old church fathers used to call acedia, that faced with the limits we experience in relationship with others, we just give up. We no longer even try to be alert or expectant or attentive to each other's growth. We no longer turn our spirits to the future and allow it to school us in dealing with each other in the present. But we become listless. We become sluggish. Impatience rails against limits. Resignation resigns itself to them. Resignation abandons itself to these limits. And in so doing, abandons hope and is overcome by apathy and indifference. Why bother? Why bother, we say, nothing is going to change in this other person, so we might as well slip into a careless and lifeless passivity. And I wonder if either of these ring true for your experience in community. Maybe you've been given over to impatience because of the slowness at which others change. Or maybe you've slipped into lifeless passivity that you're just beaten down by what seems like the impossibility of change in others. You've tried long enough, you've admonished long enough, you've encouraged long enough, and you've helped long enough, and nothing seems to change. You no longer rail against the slowness of change in others through impatience, but rather you have resigned yourself to what seems like the impossibility of change in others. And so the relationship is no longer marked by frustration at their slowness to change, but marked by a listless, laissez-faire, nothing's going to change in them type of disposition. Both of these, angry impatience and listless resignation, both of these are the antithesis of what Paul commands here. He says, be patient with them all. And the Christian community is, above all other societies, able to be patient with one another. Why is that? Because our life together as Christians has a purpose, and purpose can drive patience. Patience is possible in the Christian community because our life together is purposeful. God's unstoppable purpose of sanctifying and changing his people into what he intends them to be. Patience is possible in the Christian community because our life together has a certain shape. It has a certain direction, a shape and a direction that is tied up in the unstoppable and sure purpose in God that he will conform each of us as Christians into the image of his son, no matter how long it takes. And that's the kicker. Impatience and resignation happens, not because we see God's purpose and timeline unfulfilled, but because our purpose, our timeline for one another is unfulfilled. In order for us to be patient with one another in Christian community, we must resist the temptation to bind each other to our own expectations of how long it takes to change. We must 
release one another from our own self-centered, selfish goals and purposes. Listen to how the British theologian John Webster says this. The patience of the saints is one of the ways in which the gospel converts us away from our sins and restores us to human fellowship. Impatience eats away at friendship and neighborliness. When we are impatient with our fellows, he's British, we refuse to let them be what they are. We want them to think differently, to be capable in the way that we think they ought to be capable, to, to match our ideas about what they should do and how and when they should do it. Our impatience in the end is a refusal to let our fellows be, a refusal to allow them the time and space that they need to fulfill God's calling of them. When I'm impatient, I want my neighbor to exist on my terms, in my space, in my time frame. He goes on, and so, in the end, I lack love, for love is patient. It waits. It looks not to the selfish ideas of what I want from or for my neighbor, but to my neighbor's real end, which is in God. And so, patient love lets my neighbor be. That doesn't mean that we are absolved from any responsibility to our neighbors, quite the contrary. That we must act in our neighbor's regard, sometimes intervening, sometimes correcting or challenging one another, admonishing, encouraging, helping. But, he goes on, if we do so, it is not to line up our neighbor with our view or of what he or she ought to be, but in order to lovingly and patiently promote the purpose of God. Friends, patience is a, a steadiness of spirit, a steadfastness in which we keep on keeping on with one another, not out of listlessness or, or doggedness, but because we know our time together has a telos, has a goal, has a purpose. And that goal is the growth and sanctification of God's people, which cannot and will not be thwarted, no matter the obstacles and the thickets that we run into with one another. In Christian patience, we can step back and see that God will proceed at a rate and follow a certain course which is ideally suited to the individual. Raising successive issues over the years and making a, a point of the need for growth in one area after another. But it's going to take time. This purpose is going to take time, but it's still a purpose that will be fulfilled. And so because this purpose will be fulfilled by the power and the faithfulness of God, we can be patient with one another in the process. Christian community more than any other society, has the resources for a healthy view of time. Being patient with one another because we know and we believe that God will accomplish His purpose for the other. This type of community, icon, this type of community, one of love and patience, is the type of community that can bring peace into our anxious lives. That our embrace and immersion into Christian community isn't just to satisfy a psychological need, though it does, that an embrace and immersion into this type of community will bring, will bring peace because it, in a way, becomes the voice and the presence of God toward us. That existing in Christian community is a way in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is manifested to us outside of us. When I embrace community, 
When I really embrace and immerse myself in this type of Christian community, I am pulled out of my head. I am invited out of the little, little spirals that I send myself into in isolation. And then I'm invited into believing afresh the love and the patience of God embodied in these people. In these people that have embraced me. That the embrace of the people ministers to me the embrace of God. Peace needs a people. This loving and patient people. Because taking in the gospel as your reality on a day-by-day basis, it requires a voice that is not our own. It requires a voice that doesn't sound like you. And so the peace of the gospel and its implications for you are fleshed out in one another as we encounter one another in love and in patience. In community, peace is possible because we're not left alone to be accosted and shamed by our own thoughts, ruminating on failures and discouragements over and over and over and over again. But we are invited to take our cues again from the gospel as each of us embody the love and patience of God toward us. And this type of community of love and patience not only is the voice of God the voice and the presence of God's love and patience toward us, but it also, all of these other relational practices that we're talking about, Bible reading, prayer, silence and solitude, all of them are enlivened and energized by life together that we need in order to really grow. So if Bible reading really brings us peace, if silence and solitude is to bring us peace, it won't just happen completely in isolation. That in order for these things to really be what they are and what they could be in your life, they need to also in some way have a, have a connection point to the community of God's people. Listen to how Richard Lovelace says in his books, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. The normal Christian life is not simply a function of an individual believer's relationship to God. Listen to that again. The normal Christian life is not simply a function of an individual believer's relationship to God. He says, if we are isolated from Christians around us who are designed to be part of the system through which we receive grace, we cannot be at peace and filled with the Spirit as otherwise we would be. Individual spiritual dynamics and corporate spiritual dynamics are interdependent, just as the health of the body and the health of its cells are correlative. In other words, you cannot be a growing, healthy Christian living in peace with just as, as Justin so profoundly put it, a date night with Jesus. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But really, private relational practices will hit a ceiling in your life if there's not communal relational practices to join along with it. And so community brings peace into our life. And in many ways, these spiritual disciplines, these relational practices of Bible reading, of prayer, of fasting and feasting, of simplicity, they each in some way fit into the community of God's people, this other relational practice. And they're compounded, they're energized, they're enlivened to bring more peace into our lives. Now, to close, I just want to say one final word. Uh, what I've described this entire sermon is an ideal. And sadly, not often the norm. That there are only two utopian societies in the Bible. 
in the beginning and then the end. And guess what? We don't live in either one of those right now. Rather, our past experience of community might be, and I would say probably might be, marked by harshness and impatience. I, I, I joked at the beginning that this sermon, this relational practice of getting into community is one of the easiest one of the series because you feel your need for it, but also, in some ways, it might be one of the more difficult ones. Because you know what a Bible reading plan doesn't do to you? It doesn't abandon you. <laughs> you know what silence and solitude will never do to you? It'll never gossip about you and falsely destroy your reputation. Practicing Sabbath will never result in you being manipulated, but you know what might? Other people. And for those of you who carry the wounds of an abusive community in the past, I just want to say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that you were put through such painful experiences with other people. Or maybe your wounds in community are self-inflicted, that there's some specific sin that you are just suffocating under shame and is keeping you from getting into community. For either of you, I want you to, do, to know today, to sincerely know that Jesus is able to heal those wounds. I don't want to move past those wounds, but I do want to say Jesus can heal. Jesus can remove that which would keep you isolated from the community of God's people. And we see him doing this all throughout the Gospels. That all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is going through towns and cities, giving healing to those who need it. And I want you to consider something that you might not have noticed. What is Jesus doing when he's going through cities, when he's going through towns, healing people? Well, obviously, he's, uh, he's giving a picture of what it means for the kingdom of God to come again on earth. But also, also, he's removing the disabilities the dysfunctions, and the deficiency that keep people isolated from community. That he heals the leper, removing the uncleanness from him that robbed him for so long from the dig dignity of human touch. The leper is welcomed back into the people. He frees the man afflicted by demons, which for years had kept him isolated from the town, living among the graves. He frees that man. He heals him, and he gives him the sanity to return to the community. He heals the blind and the mute and the deaf, opening up again the possibility of real communication and thereby connection to other human beings that's no longer handicapped. And all of this is a picture of what he wants to do for you that the gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is able to heal you of jadedness as you watch the Son of God empathize with you in pain. The gospel is able to remove from you the suffocating blanket of shame as you see your sin hung upon the shoulders of Jesus that he so willingly took for you. The gospel, when received and taken in, is able to heal and prompt you to no longer exist on the fringes, but to come in to the people of God, a people made and carried along by grace. Our God is able to tear down what sin builds up, and He's able to build back up again what sin tears down. That He's able to remove from you, to take from you lovingly those hurts, those wounds, those emotional disabilities, those relational dysfunctions, those sinful deficiencies that would 
seek to keep you from the community of God's people. And so look to Jesus. By faith, come in and join. Icon, I can't wait to be in Seattle. I can't wait to come be with you and to spend my energy doing all I can to help us be this type of community. Reflecting God's grace, God's love, and his patience with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have poured out your love on us, God. That your love is not mediocre. Rather, your love melts away the things that keep us self-righteous, the things, the things that keep us jaded, the things that keep us from loving one another. Your love is unsearchable, irrevocable, and because of that, it changes us. And I thank you for your patience with us, God, that you never are impatient with us, that you never become sluggish in our change, but you are active in it always. And because of that, we can have hope for one another and with one another that we will each be sanctified, conformed into the image of your Son, the true icon who reflects your glory and grace. And I pray that he would be lifted up in the hearts of those who are listening, God. And that they would know that there's nothing that can in reality separate them from the people of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give them that hope, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.